the edge is interesting for use cases that have to be solved at the edge, have to be solved in real time, have to be solved by localized data that is not accessible in the cloud. In general, it's great for physical problems. And in particular, what we cared about is actually solving collisions, solving car accidents. What's costing your business time and money? Inaccurate address data. Smarty Streets provides blazing fast address validation, auto-completion, and rooftop geocoding APIs. Stack Overflow listeners get a kick-awesome t-shirt in one of three designs when you start your free trial. Get yours at smartystreets.com slash stackoverflow. Head on over there, check out the free trial, get an awesome t-shirt, and support the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am Ben Popper, the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I am joined, as I often am, by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. So I have two young boys. They're seven and eight, and I've told them many times, like, I really hope when you're 18, you don't have to drive a car. Like, I hope that the cars drive you. It'll make it safer. It'll make I'll worry less. And they have, like, some vague knowledge of this and are very excited about it. And then they also know we'd like just leased a relatively new car. And so it has the lane assist. So sometimes, you know, like if I'm on a country road, it's easy. I'll take my hands off and like the, show them that the car, like, you know, can stay in the lane on its own, things like that. You know, and where this comes from is just an increasingly large number of sensors, specifically cameras, but some cars also have radar. My car has radar, LIDAR, all kinds of things in a car that can sense, you know, and map the world around them. And then onboard smarts, you know, that can decide what to do with that data. Mm-hmm. So today we have a great guest coming on, Aran Shear, who is the co-founder and CEO of Nexar. Aran, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So this is the Stack Overflow podcast. So usually we like to start out by just asking people, how did you get involved in the world of technology, computer science, programming, any of that stuff? Like take us back as far as you want to go and let us know sort of what your journey has been in that world to here. Wow, now I need to really think how... Search the memory banks, right? Yes. Well, my first computer was a Commodore 64. Me too. Oh, cool. So that, that kind of dates us, unfortunately, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty well. That's right. So my first experience with software was to build games for Commodore 64 because I was like a elementary school and then middle school. And what you care about is games. So I, I, I remember distinctly building a, a ninja game for the Commodore 64 and Commodore 128 with kind of sprites and mm-hmm. reading and writing directly to memory and learning assembly and pick and poke and all kinds of things like that. And then uh, when, when I turned 13, the Amiga came out. Now, the Amiga was like this massive... It was like a science fiction computer compared to the PCs. <laughs> it has a dedicated graphics chip it has a dedicated audio chip it was crazy unfortunately it was too expensive so my parents said well you can get a pc if you want (laughs) (laughs) did it have that stuff because like they were looking at the gaming market like they thought that's who would buy it was people wanted to yeah play sweet amiga games that's kind of yeah and 3d they had 3d games 3d games and we're talking about like the 80s it was crazy but my real passion at the time was actually physics so gaming was kind of a hobby. Computers was kind of a hobby. But my real passion was physics. I studied physics all through kind of 
basically since I was like in fourth, fifth grade, and then went out to to do a first degree in physics. I'm Israeli, so I did my army service. And then I went back, did my master's in physics. And all through that time, uh, computers was sort of a, something I, I enjoyed. I, I used as a non-programmer programming for different uh, research uh, needs. Right? So I was kind of doing Perl and all kind of stuff like that. No one uh, really knows how to read. And then in the early 2000s, I started doing, started doing startups. My first startup was a company that tried to do AI for search, uh, like Google-like search. Mm-hmm. I was sort of enamored by um, Google and, and search in, in general back in 98, 99 when they just started. And so try to build a personalization engine for search. So you will get different results than I would get based on our different kind of... The filter bubble before the filter bubble was cool. Exactly. Obviously, that wasn't, wouldn't fly in like 2000, 2001. Didn't really uh, work. But I learned a lot. Went back to academia doing a PhD in complex systems and complex networks. And there I really dove into hardcore stuff because we were building the large internet observatory. So basically I had thousands and tens of thousands of people all over the world and installed my software. And through that software, we could map the underlying network of the internet, all the routers and all the all the connections, what's called the autonomous systems, not the new autonomous, but the, mm-hmm. the, the internet networks. If you ever heard of something called BGP? Oh, it's very popular right now. It is. Yesterday, it's been all the rage, right? <laughs> so we yeah. mapped, my research project called Dimes, mapped all of the BGP in the world through crowdsourcing. And so I, I fell in love with crowdsourcing. At the time, it was like the superpower. All of a sudden, you know, a young guy in Tel Aviv can get tens of thousands of people all over the world to install his software and to basically see things that the biggest companies in the world couldn't see. Did you have like a fully global view? Like, you know, it were yeah. some networks cordoned off like, a, a, you know, North Korea or were like, you know, some places wouldn't let you do it or like you really were able through user participation to get like a global view of sort of that internet backbone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there were holes like North Korea, I can't say that we had a lot of coverage there. I'm not sure that there was a lot of internet in North Korea back in the early 2000s. But we could see pretty much everything because it was like a virus, right? Like we mm. were going, whatever defenses ISPs put, they put them looking outside, right? If you are a customer of some ISP and you install my software, then I circumvented all of the defenses <laughs> and I get all of that information. So the ISPs, do they hate you? Do they sue you? Yeah, this doesn't sound like something they'd be into. No, they didn't. They, we, you know, it was all for research, academia, mm-hmm. writing papers, et cetera, et cetera. And it was all open. Like the data was open. We gave it to the research community. And uh, even after I left the academia, it ran for like 10 years. We invented some really cool, fun things. So we invented something. I invented something called Tree Route which basically used the fact that I have all of those agents to map unlawful routes, right? So basically TraceRoute walks through what is approved through BGP to be the right uh, route. But if 
I can coordinate, you two can coordinate so that when a packet comes to, to Ben, he says, I'm actually Ryan, I'm not Ben. You can actually trick the, the network to think something else and then everything is available to you. Anyway, long story short, it was fun. Eventually, I realized that I enjoy startups more and they have more impact. So I left academia and started a company called Dapper that was sort of trying to build a semantic web. This is like the web tool days. We allowed you to build an API from any website in like five minutes. Doesn't matter if they have an API or don't. Uh, you come in, some machine learning, some, some clicks, and you got yourself a full-fledged REST API that you can query from any, any website in the world. And that turned out to be quite popular, turned out to be the foundations of, of some cool stuff, including dynamic advertising and, and widgets and all kinds of stuff like that for a few years. And then uh, about the 10 years ago, I sold it to Yao, spent a few years at Yao building on a, their next-gen advertising platform, did my stint, <laughs> spent a year at a VC. And in 2015, I, I launched Nexar together with my co-founder, Bruno, who was actually my boss at Yao. So yeah, let's poke around a little bit about why you chose Nexar, you know, what interested you in this space and how right. you and your co-founder, what sort of expertise you brought. I know a little bit about this world from my time at The Verge. I used to cover some autonomous driving stuff, did a piece on the history of LiDAR, and I, I briefly worked at DJI, which has lots of pretty advanced technology in the field. So, you know, it took you, yeah, from a world of APIs and dynamic advertising to a world of physical objects moving at high speed, trying to understand the world around them and perform safely. So we looked at the world in 2014 and early 2015, so about seven years ago. Looking at the world then, we had one key insight. Intelligence is coming to the edge. So we knew how to do machine learning and deep learning at scale, at Yao scale, which was pretty significant, and how to leverage it for all kinds of problems. It was the beginning of the deep learning revolution those years, and we were very excited about it. But the key insight that we had was that intelligence Deep learning is all kind of going to get to the edge eventually. And now if you get to the edge, you ask yourself why. Why it's important to be on the edge and not in the cloud. In the cloud, I have infinite amount of compute. I have infinite amount of data, supposedly. Why is the edge interesting? The edge is interesting for use cases that have to be solved at the edge, have to be solved in real time, have to be solved by localized data that is not accessible in the cloud. In general, it's great for physical problems. And in particular, what we cared about is actually solving collisions, solving car accidents. Back in 2014 and 2015, and still to this day, there was a conundrum, right? You mentioned your car has lane assist, it has all these kind of fancy features, right? And still, if you look at the statistics from 2010 onwards, the number of fatalities keeps growing. It went down for years and years until around 2010, and then it started going up. We're told that the cars are getting smarter and, and, and safer, etc. The number of collisions, the number of fatalities going up in the US. How come? We thought that the main reason why that's happening, aside from the obsession with SUVs and trucks, which obviously contributed significantly to it, was that we need to extend the time budget cars have and people have to uh, react to the crazy chaotic world that is out there, 
right? The problem that the fundamental problem that we have in making cars safer is that the budget time that you have as a driver is around a second or two, if you're lucky, because that's basically the distance that you maintain from the next car. And that is just not enough. It's not enough for you as a human. It's also not enough necessarily for, for computers. And so what can you do? This is the physical, the, the truck is there, like two seconds uh, ahead of you. There's nothing you can do, supposedly. Well, what we thought you can do is actually network all the cars together, right? So if we network all of the vehicles with real-time networking, with eyes that understand what they see and can communicate that in real time across an area, across a region, all of a sudden, you are aware of something that's happening 100 yards away. You can react to it in beforehand. You know, it's like that sentence that a wise man doesn't fall into a ball that a, that a smart man can get out of. That's basically what we envision. We've envisioned a network of vehicles with eyes open constantly that calls the public space, calls the world like Google calls the web. And that's what we set out to do at Nexar build that network to unlock the value of the data for smart city, for mapping, for real-time driver assist, for all these kind of use cases. That's our trajectory. That was the, the vision then. It's still the vision very much today. Only we managed to, to do a few things in, the, in, in between. You know, you talk about having cameras all over the cars and networking all the cars. This is a big data machine you're constructing. How do you prevent this from being abused? I have heard of repo men going around scanning license plates to find uh, repossessable cars. And then that data being used to track people yes. by their cars and participate in things like un union busting. So the, the way that you pre prevent your system from being abused is, is that you put privacy as a foundational part of the system. Right? Mm -hmm. So for example, we blur all license plates and blur all faces we have a sort of a wall between your personal account where the raw data is and any what we call shared memory, any insight that are aggregated and anonymized by the swarm of, of vehicles. We have a privacy pledge. We, we're doing a lot in that realm. And the reason why fundamentally is because, you know, we uh, believe that there is a, a third path, a third business model, sort of. You know, typically we were told and we told others that if you don't pay for the product, you are the product, right? That's right. what we learned in the, in the last uh, 20 years. And that was because it, there was a, I only had the, the widget selling business model, right? Like Apple, I'm, sell, I'm selling you a product, you pay me good money, and then I don't need to resell your data. Or mm -hmm. Google, were like, I'm giving you services for free and I'm going to sell all your data on the way. And Facebook optimized yeah. it even further. But in the physical space, in the physical world, there is a third way because you're seeing things that are super interesting but are not private, right? The fact mm. that a traffic light stopped working is very important, but you wouldn't consider that as a private information, right? You wouldn't right. say, oh, my God, my camera updated someone that the traffic light on 4th and King has, has stopped, uh, stopped walking. No, you think, oh, I contributed to the world, actually. This is good. And, and so there are lots of services, whether it's around smart city and mapping updates and the construction zones 
and the potholes, and I, I can go on and on, parking, mm-hmm. etc., that you can build a great business on them without sacrificing anyone's privacy, anyone's um, private data. And that's what we set out to do. Believe me, I got lots of offers over the years to do just that, those applications right. of for repo or for or even even more legitimate applications, like mm. giving people that double park fines. Eventually, you don't want people to double park. They block the traffic. It actually makes sense. Right. But I say, I'm not playing that game. Right? Right. Mm. There are lots of companies that can build that. That's not my what I'm interested in. Mm. Right. In order to uh, blur faces and license plates, doesn't the vision system have to understand what those are? Yeah. We actually developed a, and trained a very efficient models, very efficient networks mm-hmm. to detect faces and detect uh, license plates and actually do more. Like, for mm-hmm. example, we... We detect that on your windshield, there's a reflection of a document that you put, you left on the dashboard and at night it reflects and gets into the view. We detect these kind of things and, and we'll remove them. But we do all of that at the edge. Mm-hmm. So none of that data goes up to any centralized cloud data set that you can attack. In a sense. Right. So the camera is doing its work. Then there's some processing time on the edge where it can make those decisions and then it's going to share it with you. Yes. Now, separately, the raw data is stored for you in your person in your Dropbox. Basically, you have a Nexo account that is for you. It's like Nest or Wing or, or anyone else that stores the videos that are of interest to you. And there, they are raw. You own them, and we don't touch it. We don't even have access to it, other than in in support situations. And we don't use it for any data application. Is there going to be a tipping point in the near future where some of sort of our more ambitious goals for self-driving cars or smart cities are going to come to fruition? Or, you know, does that stuff have just too much friction with local politics, federal regulation, et cetera, et cetera, to be achievable in the, in the near term? I must say, I don't think it's local politics. I think it's the technology. It's really hard. You know, mm. I think that uh, we are still very far away from solving the generic level five kind of I can drive wherever use case. Mm-hmm. The world right. is just super complex. Look, we have collected over 25 million harsh events over the last four or five years. Right. All of them are different. It's a super long tail that we have to solve as an industry. It's non-trivial. So you will see things popping up in limited regions, in limited scenarios, and they will slowly, very slowly expand highways, then maybe highways and a bit of the primary ways, et cetera. It's not going to be something that uh, is going to happen overnight. Sadly, I think your kids in like eight years or so will still <laughs> be needing a, a chauffeur or right. a human chauffeur or drive themselves. To right. many, many, many destinations. <laughs> Maybe a different question to ask, which I'm equally interested in, is if the data were to already show, and maybe it does, I haven't looked too closely, that being in a car that's fully autonomous at level three or four is as safe as being in one that's driven by a person. Do you think we could start to change people's minds and say, look, it's the system is never going to be perfect, and it's not as near perfect as we want it, but it's already safer than many people driving around making, as you said, many mistakes because their reaction time is impaired or just slower than a, what a top-line yeah. machine can do today. 
I think that there are two issues here. One is psychological, right? Like you are willing to be killed by a Ryan. You are not willing to be killed by a robot. <laughs> I tell him the, that all the time. Yeah. I, so, so that is something that is just, we need to be aware of it. Like people are right. not willing to be killed by a robot. So, so that's what. Take it as you will. But that, that's, the, that's the situation. The second point is I think the issue is not really safety. The reason why we don't have car, Waymo cars or cruise cars everywhere is not because of safety necessarily. It's because of them getting stuck and don't know what to do. If Imagine downtown San Francisco and all of a sudden someone puts a, an orange cone on some lane and that causes a chain reaction that gets a, a cruise car to be stuck. And then under it, there's a, a line of drivers kind of shouting and, and a congestion and all that. These are the hard problems that the companies mm-hmm. haven't solved yet. And it will take time because the problem is truly complex. A lot of things mm-hmm. can happen in different parts of the world. That's why it's not about convincing the people because people, regulators can be convinced. Just, I think, yesterday, the California DMV approved the Cruise and, and Waymo to, to provide autonomous uh, rides. It's because the people in the companies truly understand the complexity of the problem right. and see how many times they need to engage. And they know that if they'll just launch it, it will create mm-hmm. still lots of havoc. And that's why yeah. we need to continue kind of progressing gradually and not kind of do a one-time kind of launch. Yeah. And I think there's also a liability question too, that for companies to launch this, they have to be very sure of their algorithms because if there's an accident, who does the insurance company go looking for money from? You know, do they go to the car manufacturer? But I think that what happened in the last year that is very interesting and very exciting for us is that the industry is starting to realize the power of crowdsourcing. Mm. The typical way in which AV companies went is we're going to take the, the meanest, baddest car that we can engineer with lighters and cameras and everything that we can put. doesn't matter the price. We'll figure out the problem and then we'll scale. We actually went the totally the different way of saying we're going to take the cheapest sensor we can get and mm. we'll put it everywhere, like hundreds of thousands of people and crowdsource all this data. And what's happening these days is that the, the companies understand that they need orders of magnitude more data in order to finish the other 20%. You know, there is the 80% initially, and then there's 80% afterwards. For the other 80%, you need a lot more data, and that will come from crowdsourcing and things like that. And I think that's the thing I am hopeful for the industry because the penny has dropped, and you see all of these initiatives, and you see also the coverage of these things, and OEMs getting into the picture. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I am going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, someone who came on Stack Overflow, found a question with a score of three or less, gave it an answer, and got up to a score of 20 or more. Awarded September 27th to user engineer, how to break out of the if statement. It's probably a deep one. I'm going to have to put it in the show notes. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always email us with questions and suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. If you like the show, leave a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. 
And if you have a great blog post idea, uh, you can email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. And I'm Iran Shear, co-founder and CEO of Nexa. You can find me on Twitter at Iran Shear. And uh, if you want to learn more about Nexa, getnexa.com is the way to go. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming on. And uh, everybody who's listening, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.